Where do we start this? And the answer doesn't matter. Help. We're having a good time. Right. <laughs> he couldn't wait to get in here. You need sales balls to make sales calls. Sure. I'm tweeting that puppy. <laughs> okay. Welcome to the Sell or Die podcast. We're your hosts, Jeffrey and Jen Gittimer. I'm the author of The Little Red Book of Selling and 15 other best-selling books and the creator of the seven-figure sales formula program. I grew up in Philadelphia, sold in New York City, but was smart enough to move to Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm the author of Sales in the New York Minute and creator of Breakthrough Business Babe Community. Fun fact, I'm obsessed with our dogs and consider them humans. If you have a dog, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Sell or Die is for sales professionals, salespeople, sales managers, entrepreneurs, and business owners who want to sell more at full price, earn loyalty, and have an unlimited stream of referrals. Every single episode is going to give you real-world, easy-to-implement solutions so that you can get your calls returned, your proposals read and acted on, all while creating relationships that you can take all the way to the bank. It's time to sell or die. Many of you know that our friend Mark Eaton passed away suddenly from a bicycle accident. And we wanted to share our love for him by rebroadcasting our podcast episode that we did about a year and a half ago. Before we get into the episode, I just want to say a few words about Mark because he was truly a remarkable person who achieved unbelievableness, for lack of a better word, at anything and everything he did from playing basketball to speaking to writing and to just being a friend and a person of value and of heart. He had just the biggest heart I've ever seen. Standing seven feet, four inches tall, it's hard to miss Mark Eaton when he walks down the street. But what you see on the outside has very little to do with what he's like on the inside. He was our friend, but he was a giving soul. He was a gentle giant, giving every chance he could give, being kind to everyone that he possibly could be kind to, and making certain that everyone left him feeling better than when they first met him. Please listen carefully to the words and the wisdom of the late, great Mark Eaton. I was in the airport the other day in Houston and this uh, lady, I was changing planes and this lady walks up next to me and she just takes a few steps and she just looks at me and she says, how tall are you? And I keep walking. I say, I'm seven, four. She ponders that for a moment. She says, I hope you did something with that height. And I said, I did. <laughs> and we kept walking. <laughs> oh, man. That's cool, though. Yeah. That's, a, that's yeah. a beautiful piece of Americana. Yeah. 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 Where do we start this? And the answer doesn't matter. Help. We're having a good time. Right. <laughs> he couldn't wait to get in here. You need sales balls to make sales calls. Sure. I'm tweeting that puppy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Welcome to Sell or Die. My name is Jeffrey Gittimer. You may know me as the author of The Little Red Book of Selling. And I'm joined today by the lovely, the talented, the amazing... Jen Gluckhouse, founder and CEO of Sales in the New York Minute. And we're about to talk to you today about some amazing happenings in the world of sales. But we have a guest today that is... I don't know, not only off the chart, but bumps his head on the <laughs> on the door jam when he walks into any door. Yeah, he is 
Pretty amazing. Yeah. Person. Nice guy, professional athlete, the great Mark Eaton, mm -hmm. who at seven feet, four inches tall, played for the Utah Jazz for a little bit more than a decade, made the all-star team, set some records, and uh, has been a friend for a long time. Yeah. Before we get into it, Jeffrey, yeah. I want to talk today about sales teams because Sales managers often- I don't want to often, talk about sales teams. You talk on your own. All right, fine. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> sales teams- sales, See, that's how sales teams are. Yeah, but they sales managers yeah. often refer to their sales force as my sales team. Right. They use the word team as if they're a team. Well, they're trying to be nice and inclusive. Oh, um, well, they actually want to think, or they're trying to think that they're a team. Right. But, but sales, the sales people, people don't think they're on a team all, well, most of the time. Not only not think it, Jennifer, they don't want to be on the team. They want the guy next to them to die so they can have his leads or his book of business. <laughs> and they go up to his boss and go, if, uh, if Bob dies, can I have his uh, book of But here's the thing. If I'm selling something in New York City yeah. and you're selling something in Utah and we work for the same company and we don't have the same territories, why shouldn't we be on a team? Well, we can be on a sort of a team. We can come to a meeting and we can both give ideas about how we close the deal. Because I can learn from you and you can learn from me. Maybe, but if I'm the best sales guy on the team, I don't think I can learn from anybody. And New York people don't want to learn from other people. They just want to go out and make a sale. Smart New York people want to learn. Okay, name a hundred of those. But, <laughs> but here's the deal. The salesperson doesn't want to win one for the team. They want no, to they win, want to win one for themselves, for themselves. And, right. and their customer and then the right. team. So if you go watch a movie, you know, win one for the Gipper, the new Rockney story, that's a movie. They're not going to win one for the Gipper. They're going to win one for themselves and their kids' tuition and their car payment and their mortgage payment. So under, if the manager understands that the salesperson wants to win for themselves, then maybe they can say, hey, if you want to win more, listen to what your fellow salespeople are saying. Maybe you can learn something from them and make more sales. So this episode is all about the four commitments to winning team from Mark. Right. And I just want to set the stage because a lot of salespeople, as we said, don't feel that they are on a team. I ran a sales team for a couple of years, and I believe one of the reasons we were so successful at exceeding our quota was that we did act like a team. And so let's talk about the benefits there are out there when you're a salesperson and you are part of a team and you contribute to the team. Bob wants to win the sales contest so he can make the president's club, but Bob has to realize that he is on a team. And the sales manager has to say, hey, you're on a team. Everyone on the team has a different position. They're not all salespeople on the team, or it's not a real team, because there are people that ship the product. There are people that bill for the product. There are people that answer the phone. There are people that provide inside service. So the company is a team. The company's people on his or her team. There are specific people. There may be five people in accounting, but only Mary is assigned to Bob. So Bob has an internal team and maybe even an external team, somebody who delivers the stuff, and that's how they have to coordinate so that they make the best impression to the customer, make everything perfect. Somebody may have to be there when the product is delivered. Yes, that's correct. But oftentimes in a company, salespeople are not competing against each other for the same sale. Maybe if you're like oh, right. selling at Saks Fifth Avenue and a customer walks in and you don't have some sort of code between your employees, you're going to jump to get that customer. Okay. That you, that's bait. You want, you want to work with them. Right. Okay. Especially if they look like they're, you right, pre, they prejudge them exactly. and you think that you can sell them a lot of clothing. But if you work at a corporation where it's B2B your team, if your manager is smart, has been divided up into specific territories. So let me right. go back to this. If I'm selling in New York and you're selling in Utah, I own the New York City territory. You own the Utah territory. There, We are not competing. Our competitors are those other guys down the block. I totally agree. And so what I wanted to talk about were the benefits of us working together on a team before we get into how to be a team. No argument on that, Jennifer, but understand that they make up about a third of the sales teams. The car sales guy, as an example, 
wants the other guy not to come to work today so he can have more leads. There's no kumbaya on that team, but there's a service manager, there's a finance 100% guy. 100% agree. Okay, so there are vertical teams and there are horizontal teams. Mm -hmm. And you have to know the sales manager has to be smart enough to know when he or she can build a horizontal team. Correct. If there's no competition, perfecto mundo. The horizontal team can be built. Correct. If there is in-house competition, then it's very, very difficult to create any kind of kumbaya. I would argue that most of the time, the B2B sales are horizontal, where you can have a team that you're working with that are not just the internal people supporting you, getting helping with leads, helping with follow-up proposals, that kind of thing, but also your teammates are if the salespeople. If are specific territories. B2C, right. B2C is more vertical, where you need the inside person and the other people within the company internally to be on your team. Okay, so we're in agreement that there can be conflict, but what I wanted to ask you, Jen, is if you would share with our listeners how you made your team work. How did you create that team that worked in harmony? It's not easy because even when they are not competing because they have different territories, mm -hmm. they're still competing for number one. Right, Salespeople are naturally competitive and want, like you mentioned, going to President's Club. They want to be in whatever form of President's Club you have at your company. They want to not just be in it, but be number one in it. Right. But I think that people are naturally, they're born with the desire, most people, to help others. And- there is this desire that if, if, or what I have seen, you can bring it out of people. If someone is really good at something, let's say you are the closing expert and we're on let's a- Let's say that. Okay, yeah, let, let, uh, let's say, like, Jeffrey. Okay, let's say that. Okay. <laughs> and we're on a team call. I'm going to talk you up and talk about why are the closing expert, give specific examples of amazing deals that you've been able to close that- you know, were really hard closes and then have you talk about how you did it. Or why you're the king or the queen. Yeah. And okay. so I'm going to give you the spotlight and then have you educate the rest of the team on how you did it so that now they feel like, here's how he did it. This is real world. This is not just our manager telling us how to do it. So what you're saying is that a salesperson can actually come on with an objection to a sale or a time lapse in a sale and then talk about how they overcame that or stuck with it, and the sale actually got made over an extended period of time, which can really reinforce the belief of all the other salespeople when they do it. Yeah, and the key is for the manager to know exactly what's going on, the details of how their salespeople have been successful, so that when they're on a team call and someone says, well, here's where I'm stuck, the sales managers can say, hey, Joe, you had that same situation yeah. three weeks ago. Why don't you talk about what you did? What I found in sales teams and what I found in, in sales forces is that they all have the same objections. Mm -hmm. There's only 10 of them. Mm -hmm. And they all have the same ones. You know, the guy said the price was too high. The guy wouldn't return my call. The guy didn't take our proposal because he took the lowest price. I, I couldn't get in to see the decision maker. There's nothing new mm -hmm. other than I lost it to a cheaper price to Amazon.com on the Internet. <laughs> uh, that's going to be a new one that's going to be universal and people are going to have to deal with that. But- when the salesperson feels that there's camaraderie through adversary, then they're more likely to join one another. And here's the thing. They want to feel like they're part of a team, even if they hate the next guy, even if they're competing against the next guy. They want to feel like someone else is going through the same thing that they're going through because they're all alone in their territory. You know, they're not going to an office every yeah, day seeing companions. I, I agree with that. They're, you know. But the manager has to come in, the leader has to come in and go, guys, when or women, when you talk about this, no bitching. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, let's yeah. take the negativity out of it. Like, the company doesn't understand me. The boss is a jerk. Yeah. Well, the boss may be a jerk. But, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? There has to be a sort of an understanding of language back and forth so that there can be a potential solution rather than two people talking at the water cooler about how bad things are. 100%. Water cooler conversations are not exactly good. You know, so what Mark Eden's going to talk about is the good advice that's going to help if you want to be on your team and advice that's going to help if you think your team sucks and you don't want to be on your team because it's going to help you be a better team player no matter what. 
The one thing you have to understand about Mark Eaton and this whole thing is at his core, he's a nice guy. Mm. And he is a helpful guy. He is a friendly guy. He is a giving guy. And that helped him win for his team. Yeah. And he stuck with it. He was a loyal guy. And he made friends with, you know, he's still friends with all of his teammates. So you look at it from that perspective and think about your own qualities. So while you're thinking of when you listen to this interview, don't simply listen to it with, oh, what's this guy going to tell me? Listen to it and compare it to what kind of a person you are. And could you execute this in the same way that he did? Because keep in mind, he was on a winning team and he became an all-star by following his own creed and his own credo. And more importantly, you're going to find out, here's a seven-foot, four-inch guy that didn't really start to play basketball in earnest until he was 21. Mm -hmm. Hated the game. All right, let's take a listen. There we go. The great Mark Eaton. So, Mark, welcome to Charlotte, North Carolina, where you will be giving a major presentation to a major Fortune 10 company tomorrow. Thank you. Uh, you'll be speaking to the uh, people at Caterpillar. Yep. And uh, you're going to be talking about, uh, uh, what are you going to be talking about, Mark? A little bit about teamwork mm -hmm. and uh, and staying safe out there, because it's obviously, uh, they're, they're a company that has uh, a lot of safety concerns as well. Of and course. so... But we're going to talk primarily about the four commitments of a winning team and kind of getting rid of that internal competition at work and and how to make each other look good and how to trust each other a little bit more and, and hopefully improve the, the camaraderie and the culture of the organization. What are the four commitments of a winning team? Oh, well. That's a secret, isn't it? I want to know. No, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a secret. Oh. It's on the inside flap of the book, I think. <laughs> Got it. Uh, <laughs> for those oh. who just want to read that part. Wait a minute. You mean this book here, the one that's coming out in April? Yes. Yep. The, the four, uh, four Commitments? Uh, yep. Of four a winning commitments team? Of a winning team. That yes. you can buy right now on Amazon if you pre-order it? Correct. Okay, cool. Or Barnes & Noble. Yes. Okay, cool. Uh, so the, the commitments are really uh, couched in my story of coming from a 21-year-old auto mechanic who couldn't play basketball to an NBA all-star. And uh, along the way, I met people, coaches who pulled me aside and shared things with me that I share in the book uh, that helped me kind of get my career launched and then get to the next level. So the first one of the stories is, um, uh, is an encounter I had with Wilt Chamberlain at the men's gym at UCLA one afternoon. I wasn't playing much at, at UCLA. In fact, I, I didn't play a whole lot there during my couple of years there. But uh, I was in the men's gym one day and kind of struggling trying to catch a lot of the faster, smaller players. And, and Wilt Chamberlain grabbed me and said, you know, quit doing that. Like, don't chase these little guys up and down the court. You're seven foot four. Come with me. And he parked my butt underneath the basket and he said, look, your job is to stop players from getting to this basket. Your job is to make them miss their shot and collect a rebound and throw it up to the guard. Let them go down there and score it, you know, and then your job is to kind of cruise up to half court and see what's going on. And uh, that was a life changing moment for me where I started to understand how to focus more in on my role and the thing that I did well. And so I call that point knowing your job. You know, what's that one thing you're excellent at that you could leverage more? And I walk people through the exercise of how to, of how to kind of focus in on it. Cause we're, we live in such a busy world. We have so much stuff coming at us. Like what's that one thing that you do well? What's that one reason that people buy from you or, or do business with you? However, let's talk about it. You were able to take the coaching yeah. and you were able to discern from that what the message was that was being given to you by arguably the greatest basketball player of all time. People will argue it's Michael Jordan, but Michael Jordan didn't average 50 points a game for a season. Michael Jordan never pulled down 55 rebounds in a game. Um, nor, nor did they change the rules because of exactly. Michael Jordan's uh, impact. They that's what, the that's what Wilt, Wilt, yeah. Wilt would always say that, you know, when they yeah. talk about Kareem being the greatest player or Michael Jordan, he said, he'd yeah. always say, unless they change the rules of the game because of your impact, I don't know if I'm say, I would say I'm the, the you know, the, the greatest of all time. Yeah. And, but uh, you can argue the point, uh, you know, back and forth. But the bottom line is that you took the coaching and did something with it. Most yeah. people will go, yeah, 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 and give it two thoughts, but not a and third thought. And still think they know everything. Right. You actually molded your career around it. Yeah. And, 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 and yeah, there's probably sometimes I probably listen to too many people, but I was always interested on how to do it better and how could I do it 
uh, more efficiently. And uh, I wanted to uh, succeed. I wanted to get better. Uh, and uh, it was only through the experiences of others and learning what they had learned in their life or in their careers that that got me to that next level. And I was, I was always grateful that somebody was willing to come alongside of me and say, mm-hmm. hey, Mark, you know, have you ever thought about doing it this way? And so what's number two? So number two is about execution. It's about doing what you've been asked to do. So are you really clear about what other people want from you? And uh, when I was at UCLA, I wasn't playing very much. And I called my junior college coach who had convinced me to leave my toolbox behind and try basketball again. And he was always there for me uh, and still is today. Uh, and he said, uh, you know, I was all frustrated that I wasn't playing. He said, well, well, that's great. If you're not going to play in the games, then, then you need to start making your practices your games. Because the problem is not the coach. It's not the team. It's you. You know, you need to get better. Uh, and so he said, if you're going to play, you're not going to play in the games. You got to make the, you know, you got to be the first guy to practice and the last to leave and do your running and do your shooting. Because he said, we're playing for the long term here. This isn't about whether you're playing or not this year in college. This is about what you're going potentially do when you leave college, you know, whether you're playing overseas, you're playing in the NBA, whatever it is. So you have to keep getting ready now for that. And, uh, and so I make the point that, that uh, in business, so many times we think we just did our best. And, uh, and I was willing to go and talk to my coach and ask him, what do I need to do differently? Uh, and so that's what I ask people when I, when I speak to them, you know, what do you need to do differently? Do you really know what other people want from you? Do you even take the time to ask them? Or are you just assuming that you're running along, providing the right product or the right service or doing the right job without, without that knowledge? And do you have the right coach who will say the harsh reality like yours did? This is well, what you and to I do don't even I don't even know if it's harsh reality. I think sometimes we just assume we're doing these things. Like you know, it's it's, it's that same thing. Like I talk about, like uh, uh, Ken Blanchard's talk about in that book, Raving Fans, about you go from hiring people to to judging them without the coaching piece in between. And so then people get hardened in that that way is like, well, geez, like, you know, I don't really know how to do my job, and I really don't want to go ask them because I fear I'll get yelled at. <laughs> yeah, but so. that coach did not give you advice. He gave you vision. Yeah. And he was willing to challenge you to take the long-term look. Instead of you whining about you're not playing right now, he said, don't worry about right now. Worry about the next 10 years. Right. And let's get let's get ready for that opportunity that's going to come down the road. Uh, and uh, I, I think we've lost a lot of that in our society today. I think it's always about what's here, what's happening right now and, and who's tweeting about that or talking about that. And and I'm sure you see it in, in the world, uh, world of All sales. It's like yeah. no one knows how to really develop relationships or think about why do you do business with people? It's well, not because I've got the wildest whiz-bang thing. It's really because there's a relationship established there. There's also about the pressure of having to make your number, your quota every month. And there's an intensity about that. Right. That doesn't really have time often to look at the big picture. I don't want to see about next week. I just want to see about Friday. Right. And, you know, you were given the blessing of somebody telling you to look down the road for 10 years and just go out and play every day, no matter what it is, and pretend like the practice is the real game. That's huge advice. Well, it is. And I, and I think that regardless of what career you're in, there are those fundamentals that you need to execute every day that make the biggest difference, that, that transcend the pressure of Friday or this month or this quarter or whatever it is. And I think that's, I think to your point, that's right. That's, that's, that was important uh, for me. So that was number two. So what's number three? Yeah. So number three is about making other people look good. And um, I tell the story of coming to the Utah Jazz in the early 80s when they were a bad team in a bad market, losing money, losing games. And our coach, Frank Layden, at that time, who was also the GM, uh, saying, look, if you guys will just stop competing with each other and start cooperating with each other a little bit, the individual accolades will show up. And back then, you know, if you signed a contract with the team and, you know, it was all based on, well, what your scoring average is, as how much money you made based on comparing it to other players in the league. And he said, look, no one cares if you're scoring a lot of points on a losing team, right? Everybody wants the players from a winning team. Mm-hmm. And so he got us to start trusting each other a little bit more, cooperating with each other a little bit more. And the more we made each other look good, the better the team looked. And in time, the individual accolades showed up. So... Perfect examples. The second year I was in the league, uh, we went from a losing team in the cellar to making the playoffs for the first time, winning a division for the first time. And we had four individual statistical leaders in the NBA, which has never been done since. We had one player that led the league in scoring, Adrian Dantley, player that led the NBA in three-point shooting, Daryl Griffith, player that led the NBA in steals, Ricky Green, and a player that led the NBA in block shots, Mark Eaton. Cool. 
So the team won, we won. That's amazing. So that's making each other, make people look good. And I'm sure that you having a vision over the top of everybody else's head in the game <laughs> uh, played a role as well because someone could give you the ball and you could see what other people could not see. Well, one of the things we did was, uh, you know, we we uh, we predicated our, our offense on playing great defense first and running an opportunity. And so my job was to collect the rebound off the glass and then fire it out at half court to Ricky Green or to John Stockton and let them run down the court with it. That was the easiest way to score. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's it, I think I correlate it to like what's the shortest distance between you and a check? Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, it's like the easy score was a fast break. Like who wants to take the ball out of the basket, walk it up the floor, and try and grind out an offense? Right. Yeah. If I can get it and out call quick, number three or you know. Yeah. If I can get out, if I can get it out quick and get it to my guard, and he can throw it to a streaking Carl Malone at the other end of the floor, slam boom. dunk, boom. That's two points. Next. Yeah. yeah exactly. Um, so uh, now we're at the uh, the big number four. So point number four is what I did well in the basketball court was I protected my teammates. And so point number four is called protect others. And I asked the question, you know, who are you protecting at work and who's protecting you? And, and do you really feel safe at work? And some people say, well, you know, my boss doesn't make me feel safe. Well, it starts with you. Do you make the people around you feel safe? And the key to trust and the key to loyalty from uh, your teammates and from your customers is that knowledge that you really have their back. You know, they're, that you're really there protecting them. And so I actually asked in my presentation, I said, you know, take take five seconds right now and write down the names of three people you need to let know that you have their back this week. That's something that really, I think, gets missed. It's like we get the sale, we move on, right? We're done, we're out of there. You know, that's the end of that relationship. And and who we do business with over the long time are those people that we do trust. And that's where that loyalty comes from. And I see that even in businesses that are highly commoditized, where there's a thousand vendors out there and you, you can just price shop all day long. Who do you choose to do business with? Well, it's probably somebody you, you developed yeah. a relationship yeah. with and somebody who feels like they've got your back. So how can I make that person look good in their organization? How can I let them know that I'm there for them? What do you need? How can I, make, how can I help you? I'm not going to buy price if I can't know that the product is going to be delivered. It's more important for me to keep a crew working than it is for me to save a dime. Right, right. So, and so how do you count on that delivery? It's because you trust that person. Mm -hmm. They're actually going to deliver if you give them the business. So I want to be that person. So you've taken an improbable basketball career, literally. I mean, most guys who are 21 years old have already been playing basketball for 15 years or more. Right. They have 15 years of dribbling under their belt. Correct. Correct. What was it Correct. like to start later? It was a challenge. Uh, number one, I didn't like basketball and being seven four. What's the one question everybody asks you? Right? How's the weather up there? Well, <laughs> that, or, or or do you, do play, you basketball? play basketball? Yeah. And I, I didn't have a good experience in high school. I sat on the bench. Um, I didn't like it. It was not fun. And um, I grew up in a, a, a kind of a blue collar household. My father was an educator at a junior college and also a, a diesel mechanic, uh, primarily working on boats, marine diesel. And so I grew up in that kind of environment, helping him fix boats on the weekends and things like that. And so I went to trade school because I was like, I don't know what I want to do. Basketball is definitely not in the picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I became this, this auto mechanic and I was working at a tire and auto store in Southern California when this junior college coach pulled in and convinced me to give it another shot. And it was challenging because I had been, you know, eating junk food and, and hadn't done really anything athletic for a long time. So the first few weeks were pretty darn rough. But I, I liked what he had to say because he had worked with a couple other big guys, a guy named Swen Nader, who played behind Bill Walton, and had helped him. And so he understood the game from a big man's perspective, uh, which was different than your standard high school coach would, would know. A so, lot of young big guys have the walking, chewing gum problem. Yes. Uh, where you can you can walk, but not at the same time you're chewing gum. Because right. they, they develop later. They're yeah. growing so fast that the muscles and the coordination just doesn't catch up until they're 19 or 20 or 21. And uh, we, or we in my a, case, never. But <laughs> I, went, uh, <laughs> I went to Haddonfield High School. We had a kid named Ed Sweeney mm-hmm. who was 6'10 as a sophomore. And it was going to be like our golden year with the, with one exception, and that is he couldn't dribble and he couldn't shoot. And— the coaches, I would go to basketball practice after school just to watch this guy. Right. And the coaches were so frustrated with him that they didn't know how to coach him. 
They right. didn't know what to do with him because he didn't have fundamental skills. Right. And so those players get cast off aside right. because they're not he about the here and now. He and they're played. not willing to take the time to develop them, understanding that it's going to take some time. And so this this junior college coach, that's what he did with me. And even when I came to the Jazz, Frank Layden looked at me and he said, uh, you know, uh, and he was an old Staten Island high school coach and coached at Niagara. And he'd been around a while. And he says, look, I want you to be comfortable with the basketball. I'm going to force you to do dribbling drills, force you to do ball handling drills. Not that I need you to bring the ball up the court, but he says, it's going to increase, increase your confidence with the ball on the basketball court. And, and he was right. I did the dribbling drills. I, I did the, you know, the running drills, everything else he wanted. And I got more comfortable with the basketball and it improved my confidence and improved my game. Isn't it interesting that one of the most watched things in professional basketball right now is Steph Curry's pregame dribbling drills. Correct. Yeah. yeah people now, will, yeah. thousands of people will show up early right. to watch this guy go through his dribbling drills. Right. Unlike any other player ever. Yeah. And geez, it's so amazing that he can dribble so well on the court. I wonder how that happens. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I practice? Wonder, What's that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and his daddy, I mean, he's got the lineage. You know what I mean? He's already got he could already shoot. He was born a shooter. Yeah. Now all he has to do is become a ball handler to a point where you've seen him make some of the most unbelievable plays in the history of, of pro basketball. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Yeah. Anyway, um, so you're a dribbler now. I mean, you can bring the— <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that, but, uh, but I was always comfortable that if I had to take two or three dribbles to get out of traffic and create the outlet pass, that I was, I was comfortable doing that. And, uh, and it did increase my confidence with the ball when I got a rebound and, you know, had to clear some space or whatever it was to, to get rid of it. Uh, and, and I felt more comfortable and more complete as a basketball player because of that. The, the most interesting thing is you had some pretty good players that you played with. Yes. I mean, you weren't, there were no slackers on the Utah Jazz for a long time. Right. You won a lot of, you know, the only, your nemesis obviously was the Chicago Bulls. Yeah, but, I, but, but uh, yeah, and, and no, they didn't ever win a championship, but we had 20 consecutive playoff appearances. And we went from a team that was losing money in a bad market and made it a perennial contender. And I think that's what I'm most proud of. And I think many of my teammates are most proud of. Um, so whether it was starting out with, you know, Adrian Dantley and Daryl Griffith and Ricky Green, and then moving on to, to John Stockton, Carl Malone, Thurl Bailey, uh, Bobby Hanson, guys like that, that mm -hmm. became a part uh, of the team going forward. Uh, that 20 consecutive playoff appearances? 20 consecutive playoff appearances. That's amazing. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. So you certainly were always in the hunt. Yeah. And we were always in the mix and we were respected. And, uh, you know, and our coach would tell us, hey, look, if, you know, if we're gonna, not going to make the playoffs, we're going to affect the playoffs. We're going to beat the Pistons and the Lakers and the Celtics and some of these things. And Frank would tell us that kind of stuff. We'd look at him like we were crazy. And he'd say, I'd rather lose the game by two points instead of three. You know, that first yeah. year we had a losing season. We're like, yeah. well, why? Because two points is closer to winning. You know, exactly. You would do things like that. Uh, and what was the difference when you, when you went from uh, Frank to Jerry? Jerry Sloan. Sloan. Yeah. Well, Frank had an interesting challenge because he became sort of the face of the team because we were in a, uh, you know, my rookie year, there were only 17 televised games, most of our games, and those games were shown on tape delay at 11 o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, in and Salt so, Lake City, Utah. In Salt Lake City, Utah. So nine, Nobody, po no nine one people were watching. Right. No one. they knew. all drink milk and cookies and they're in bed and they by go to seven. Bed. Right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so no one really knew who we were. And Frank took on this, this personality of being this fun loving, funny guy. Cause he was a great joke teller, mm -hmm. great stand up lunch, lunchtime speaker. And so once he got the team to a certain level where we were competitive, then Coach Sloan came in, Jerry did, and really took that intensity to another level. He said, okay, you guys do this well, you do that well, but we're going to focus more on execution now. We're going to focus more on, on proper defense and getting through screens and really not cutting any corners uh, and turned up the heat. But he was also very consistent about it. He knew, you knew exactly what he expected every day. Where Frank was a little more emotional up and down and kind of all over the map sometimes, Jerry was just the same way every day. He expected it, he expected it, he expected that, that performance, that intensity. And, you know, and there's certain things in basketball court that you can do every day, regardless of whether the shots going in or not, right? You can play defense, you can get yourself prepared, you can get rebounds, you can do, you can get a steal, you can get your hand on the ball, whatever it is. And that's what Jerry Sloan expected. And I think that's what took the team to the point where they were able to go to the finals a couple of years in a row. I think that if you're a salesperson right now and you're listening to this and you go, okay, it's a basketball talk. No, no, Mark is talking about preparing. 
He's talking about consistency and he's talking about intensity. And if you don't have those three pieces as a firm part of your repertoire when you're out on a sales call, you're going to die. That's why this show is called Sell or Die, (laughs) because you either make the sale by selling yourself and then your product or service, or you die because your preparation sucked, your consistency sucked, and your commitment sucked. Mm -hmm. And either one of those, if you lose either one of those three things, you're going to die. So let's say you did lose a game, which is like losing a sale. Mm -hmm. What did you do to pump yourself up for the next game? Well, I think we always looked at it as a, as the long-term play that, uh, you know, you never got too high after a win. You never got too low after a loss because there's another game tomorrow. There's three more this week. And if you started dragging around that, that kind of negative energy from the game we lost last Wednesday, mm-hmm. you're not going to be 100% available for the possibility today of winning this game or winning that next sale. Uh, and so much like golfers, you know, where they talk about they have a bad hole and the, and the golf psychologist, the sports psychologist will say, okay, you leave that hole behind and you get on the next tee box. It's a brand new game. And so I think that's what, that's what carried us is, uh, you know, just not is, is letting go of whatever happened good or bad and being completely completely present and focused on what the opportunity is right now. So let's go out into the street. We have been friends for a pretty decent amount of time. At least I've been friends with you. I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have. Yeah. And uh, we belong to this group called the National Speakers Association, which is a highly evolved, egotistical group of 4,000 people, <laughs> of which 200 make all the money. But um, when you go to their annual convention, they have two separate rooms, one for the speakers and one for their egos. (laughs) But the the bottom line is that when you find the people that you can relate to, you become friends with them, really good friends with them. And you're a person who is – no one's ever seen – no one has ever said, hey, have you seen Mark Eaton? I can't find him. (laughs) You're easily – If I'm there, you know it. Yeah, Exactly. That's right. So how do you handle your height – Uh, in a social situation when people are sort of gawkers? Well, I I will tell you, it is a challenge at times. And, but I think what I've done in terms of looking at my speaking career, it's like, all right, I'm tall. You got to accept that. What else can we do with it? Mm -hmm. And so whether it's, uh, you know, knowing that at the end of the speech, people are going to want to take pictures and saying, well, why don't you pick up a book while you're here? Uh, mm-hmm. to, uh, to saying, well, why are you going to hire me versus somebody else that, that they're looking at? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a unique advantage that I have. And so I've tried to, and it's taken me a long time in my life to be able to get okay with that, to use that as my, as an advantage, because it's always been something that's been, like I said, it's been very challenging yeah, at hello, times. Hello, seven foot four. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it's still, you know, I, I, <laughs> you know, you get a standing ovation, you walk off stage and everybody's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you go to the airport and, you know, and first person's like, Hey, how tall are you? You, dude. Yeah, you know, exactly, uh, yeah. so you, you have that reality to deal with. But uh, but I think for the most part, I've, I've, I've done a good job of, of, you know, trying to make it an asset. Well, first things first, we've both heard your talk. Oh, yeah, we did. You're a 10. Well, thank you. It was you're phenomenal. Your, thank your you talk much. is informative and inspirational. And engaging. Yeah, Totally. So you write that down. Yeah. <laughs> well, you'll have this podcast. Actually, it'll you'll put be that on, on the back it'll, of the book right here. Oh, it already is. Okay. Yeah. 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 And I think that when you have that as as your your base, your foundation, then you don't have to worry about any of that kind of crap. And somebody says, Hey, how tall are you? You go five nine, but I'm on stilts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you should wear well, a pin that that's says why we hang out four. because you'll tell them that and they'll say, oh, that guy was really annoying, but, <laughs> but I'm still a good guy, so it's right. okay. <laughs> I am, well, you're from Salt Lake, you're not allowed to be annoying. Yeah, you It's right, like yeah. part of the, you know, yeah. you're actually polite to everybody, which I, one of your, believe me, it's one of your weaknesses. <laughs> <laughs> you got to work on that. Maybe that'll improve sales. Jeffrey. But I think that, I think the challenge for you is daily. Mm-hmm. And it's not something where you can all of a sudden wake up and walk around on your knees to be as but, tall as everybody else. But do you have fun with it? Like, do you give out fun answers? Uh, you know, to a degree. I mean, I, I make fun of it to a certain extent when I when I speak, but I also give people the reality of it. Of, of like, hey, you know, this is a challenge, but this is what I did with this challenge. Yeah. And uh, and I think that gets, that's relatable to people because I think everybody in their life can look back and said, you know, geez, I get made fun of when I was in junior high or whatever it is. And so, uh, you know, I try it. 
and level the playing field by, mm-hmm. by bringing that up. But, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I have fun with it, but most of the time I don't, you know, I mean, the pe- people come up and they think they've got the newest, greatest, most creative <laughs> one liner that you've yeah. ever heard. How's before. the weather up there? Yeah. And, uh, so I, I don't know. I, you, you know, I have this friend of mine who, you know, Mark Mayfield, who's a, who's a comedian speaker yeah. and, and he and I got together one day and he was like, you know, you should write a book about just the things that people say to you. And we were sitting in this bar in Coeur in Idaho. And we'd both spoken at this conference and, and we get up to go to the elevator and I'm thinking, yeah, it's okay. That's a pretty good idea. And as I duck into the elevator, another guy in the elevator gets there and he goes, dude, I feel your pain. And Mayfield looks at me and it's like, see, you yeah. know, yeah, exactly. uh, you should write this but stuff down. This is so. what I think. Somebody says, how tall are you? Yeah. And you can say, I'm so tall that when I sleep in a king size bed, I have to sleep Caddy corner. Caddy corner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, I think I, we, you and I could, could get together could, on a book about uh, that. A couple of, so I'm going to uh, give you could be a, a little. This is how I sleep in a king size yeah, bed. Right. You get a little 50 page book of an, questions and answers like that. Right. Like I was in the, Snappy I, answers. I, to, I was in the airport the other day in Houston and this uh, lady, I was changing planes and this lady walks up next to me and she just takes a few steps and she just looks at me and she says, how tall are you? And I keep walking. I say, seven, four. She ponders that for a moment. She says, I hope you did something with that height. And I said, I did. And we kept walking. <laughs> oh, man. That's cool, though. Yeah. That's a, that's yeah. a beautiful piece of Americana. Yeah. 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 But the challenge, that you ha- the challenge that you have is in your everyday life, you have to maintain an attitude and a sense of reality. Right. And you have to carry your attitude into your speech every time because you have to be the best you can be in front of that audience, regardless of who's, who right. said, you know, well, you, you know if it's raining before I do. Right, <laughs> right. Well, and that's, and that's the reality when you're a speaker is every audience is a brand new group yep. of people, mm-hmm. just like a sale, who don't know who you are, don't know what you do. Maybe they heard of you. Of course, I bring some NBA highlights. So that helps a little bit. Right. But, and they're uh, good highlights, by the way. Well, thank you. Yeah. yeah. And, they're, and then they're going to be like, well, well, who are you? What are you going to say? And what could you possibly know about my life? And I think I, that's the attitude going in. Uh, and I think that and – I, and I take that seriously. When I, I know that when I walk in a room that's like – Okay. Yeah. You know, I, it's my job. It's yeah. my job to prove myself. But it's also to, to gain your trust during the conversation. Calm the audience and be able to transfer your message. Correct. I'm going to tell you that he has as transferable a message as I have ever heard on a platform. Wow. And you have to look at it from the perspective of if you get a chance, yeah, write that down. If you get a chance to see Mark Eaton speak, you should take it. Go to his YouTube channel. Take a look at some of the highlights. Go to his website, sevenfootfour.com. Pre-order yeah, well, his yeah, book. Well, yeah, pre-order his book. Pre-order the book. And yes. I don't want to make this like it's a commercial and I'm fawning all over Mark Eaton. I'm a speaker. It sure sounds I've like seen, it, Jeffrey. I've seen everybody. <laughs> and when we walked out of the speech that you gave for the uh, BNI group, it was phenomenal. Thank you. I mean, you've honed your skill. You've been doing it for a decade. Right. And uh, you've honed your skill to a point where your talk is compelling. Thank you. And when you have that kind of a talk that can transfer that kind of a message, you're going to sell a hell of a lot of books. Well, thanks. I appreciate that very much, Jeffrey. We are now going to thank Mark Eaton for showing up. It's going to take him a long time to get out of the building. He has to duck everywhere. (laughs) And um, we are going to wish him well for his talk tomorrow. We may show up for a little bit of it in the back of the room. I'm assuming there's going to be food. Yes, there is. Okay, yeah. cool. So we'll show up for the food and oh, for the man. speech. I'll notify the media. Please <laughs> tell both <laughs> tell both your friends. <laughs> is uh, anybody else going to be there? Are you bringing any troops with you? Nope, just me. And cool. it's their annual uh, sales uh, awards and uh, safety awards. I think uh, kind of meeting for cool. their company. So I'm very excited to be a part of that. And we're gonna we're gonna have some fun. Yeah. Absolutely. And we will look forward to seeing you again on Sell or Die. Get a book or three. Go to Amazon.com. Get a book or three. Get them for your friends and your family. I can promise you that it will deliver a memorable and transferable message. Well, thank you both very much. I, I appreciate that so much. Mark Eden rocks. And he's a nice guy and he can dunk. You know, we should count the number of times you've said he's a nice guy. Oh. But <laughs> the, on the show. Well, but we've the been truth friends is, for a long time. He is a really nice guy. I 100% agree with you. And we keep saying that and people who don't know him don't 
really understand like how nice of, he is. Yeah. And he's a smart guy. There's a lot of athletes that are buttheads. Yeah. Well, buttheads. Have, that's have, like. Have, well, better than asshole. And, and <laughs> he, he, uh, he exudes approachability. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, well, we've been friends for a long time. I'm very proud of that. And we have been communicators for a long time. Like we'll text each other about one thing or another at odd times. And it always, you know, it's, oh, we help each other. That's cool. But I think the most important part is he's dynamic. Yeah. And when he makes a presentation, I would pay to watch him speak. That's how good he is. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And yeah. he was really good when I saw him. Yeah, yeah I agree. He, so, you know, a lot of people are thinking like at the beginning, we were talking about teams that you know, don't get along and compete and people who don't want to be on a team with anyone else, except the people that are really helping them at the back office. Right. And so if that's you, take the link for this episode and send your, the people on your team, this episode and tell them, here's how we can work together. Yeah. Mark gives great advice for each player on the team, no matter what your role is. If you're a sales guy or a saleswoman out there and you don't forward this, to every single person that you know who's in a leadership position, even the CEO of your company, you're making a big mistake. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. Mark has a way of bringing people together and making them play together in harmony to be winners. And that's the objective in your company. And, and if you're listening to this and you have one ounce of inspiration from it, give it to somebody else. Let them be inspired as well. Even if you know other people on other sales teams, just do it. Yeah. Mark's a record breaker and he's going to help you a be holder. a record breaker. He's a record holder. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that more important than that, he understands the game and how to play the game and how to win the game. He yeah. doesn't win every game, but he's consistent enough to win more than his share. So his book is coming out in April, April yeah. 3rd on Amazon. It's The Four Commitments of a Winning Team. You're going to see and it all over our stuff. you can actually pre-order it right now. You can add it to your cart. It's discounted on Amazon. You know, they play around with the price. Uh-huh. Um, we know that well. Actually, one of the cool things I learned about Amazon is if you buy something today yeah. and then like tomorrow you see it at a different price, all you need to do is email them and they refund you. Oh, really? That's crazy. Yeah. Because I bought a book that was like $18 and then three days later it dropped to 14. I was like, dear Amazon, no problem. We refunded your account. Wow. I know. It's pretty cool. So his book is coming out April 3rd. It's called The Four Commitments of a Winning Team. And, and go go pre-order it now. I would, uh, we pre-ordered several copies, but mm -hmm. for Mark, because we want ours autographed. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll bet you that if you look deep enough and find his address, which we're not going to give on this show. <laughs> uh, but I'm sure it's out there somewhere. Maybe mail it to his office. He would sign it and send it back to you. Oh, yeah. In well, a heartbeat. He's a nice guy. Yeah, exactly. So, of course he, he would. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we do the same thing here, by the way. People ask yeah, me all the time. Yeah, people send books here all the time, and then yeah. we send them back. Yep. What Postage free. It's pretty cool. So, there's a long pause. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I didn't know if you wanted to talk about anything else that Mark said. That's what I was really um, thinking. I, you know, about one, any of the commitments that may have stood out. Yeah. To me, the biggest one is to know your job. Mm -hmm. Know how you, how do you fit on the team and what is the, what are the expectations of you as a performer? And it's so interesting that Mark Eaton was taught by Wilt Chamberlain. I know. So it's not, it's not something where he just like, well, I picked this up on it. No, no, no. He picked it up from Wilt frickin' Chamberlain. But what a cool strategy from, from Wilt to say, look, your job is not to go running back and forth across yeah. the court. Your role is to stand right here. And get balls. Right. And, and by Mark are, knowing his role and those other guys knowing their role on the team, and I, I'm not really a, a sports fanatic, so I don't know everyone's name that he mentioned. Yeah. But, um, you know, by each of those guys, they were able to hold records all while being on the team. That's pretty so freaking cool. So before you cool. criticize other people about how they're doing their job, why don't you think about how you're doing your job? Mm. And are you a 10 at your job or a 10.5 at your job so that no matter what you criticize, somebody's going to say, yeah, but well, yeah, he is our best guy. So I guess maybe he's accurate in that. Yeah. And Mark talked about what can you do better? Yeah. So you have to look at this from the perspective of it's about you being a member of the team and then playing as a teammate. 
Even if you hate your freaking team. (laughs) (laughs) So look at it, look at it that way. Have a wonderful time on your team. Maybe you'll take a little bit of a, a different perspective back with you. But I want to make certain that you do it with Death Wish Coffee. Before we get to Death Wish Coffee, and I didn't mean to interrupt you, Jeffrey, but I'm going to. Okay, good. We have the most phenomenal mugs on the planet, and they just arrived. Everyone on the planet can go get their new Cellar Die mug. They say there's no prize in second place in sales. There's no prize for second place in sales. Cellar Die podcast, and on the other side, they say, I'm a diehard. Mm Mm-hmm. Pretty freaking cool. They're black with a red rim. They're I I really yep. like them. They'll hold coffees or pencils. Yeah, or paper clips or yeah. tea, whatever. You or money. Want to? Yeah. If quarters. you want to stand on the corner and beg, <laughs> there's plenty of room for dollars well, in there. Well, hopefully you're making enough sales that you don't need to beg. Anyway, you can go to buygetemer.com and under all products, scroll to the very bottom, and you will see the mugs. Uh-huh. We'll also put the link in the show notes directly to the product. But um, right now, the first 50 mug buyers are getting a second mug free. So if you buy one mug, you get one mug free. If you nice. buy 10 mugs, you get 10 mugs free. But the mugs are cool. We're drinking Death Wish coffee out of them right now. Death Wish coffee, the strongest coffee on the planet. It will keep it will keep you awake for days. And uh, we drink it because they're our sponsor. And they're really good. Well, no, they are our sponsor, but if they if the if the coffee wasn't good, we wouldn't drink it. No, we drank it way before they became a sponsor. Right, we wanted them. Exactly. And we have their stickers plastered everywhere. Yeah, it's like a, a daily reminder to have more coffee. We are a Deathwish home, not simply a <laughs> Deathwish drinker. So, get out there and get your Deathwish, but more important, I think you should look at what the lesson look at the lesson you've learned today. Uh, subscribe to us share us. We're on every form of uh, a podcast broadcast on the planet. Go to Gittimer.com. Go to the Gittimer Learning Academy.com. Take a look at what we offer for a long term. Maybe get a mug or two, but be the best you can be for yourself. Be the best player you can be for yourself. And then you can be the best you can be for others. That's, that's the real leadership tip of the day. Uh, my name is Jeffrey Gittimer. And I'm Jen Gluckow. And I'm reminding you to get out there and sell something, even if your ass falls off. Thank you so much for listening to Sell or Die. We hope that this episode has helped you transform the way you think, given you new ideas, and provided you a new perspective on the sales and business challenges that you face every day. So you can get out there and win the customer all the way to the bank. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a second to rate and review. Each review helps us help more people just like you make a difference in this world. Don't forget to take a screenshot, share it in your Instagram stories and tag us at Jeffrey Gittimer and at Jen Gittimer. See See you you next week. week.